You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. He ripped her face off! He ripped her face off? He tried to attack me! Okay, I need you to calm down a little bit. They're on the way. Can you put yourself away? I don't want the monkey attacking you. Please, hurry up! Listen to me! Uh, They're on the way, ma'am. They gotta shoot him, please! Everybody drinking blood. Everybody eating brains. Some monster party. Everybody eating flesh. Everybody breaking bones. Some monster party. If you've actually bothered to download or stream this podcast, thank you very much for doing so. My name is Kevin, and with me today and hopefully for the foreseeable future is my friend, Jamie. Say something disturbing, Jamie. There's that thumb. <laughs> there's that thumb. I promise that the phrase, there's that thumb, will make sense later if you actually manage to make it all the way through this episode. <laughs> there's we, that thumb <laughs> maybe we should do like a uh, like on Pee Wee's Playhouse where they used to do the uh, the word of the day Oh, maybe we should have a, a where's the line the word or phrase of the day like listen for the word disemboweled and when you hear it <laughs> yell <laughs> when you hear the word disemboweled honk your horn anyway so let's talk about this For our first episode, we're going to be talking about Charla Nash, a Stanford, Connecticut woman who in 2009 had both of her hands and her face ripped off by a chimpanzee named Travis. This was a really high-profile case when it happened, and I think that going forward, probably a lot of the stories that we're going to be talking about are going to be at least a little bit more obscure than this one. Um, This was a a huge national and even worldwide story back in 2009. Do you remember hearing about this back when it happened? I do. um, But obviously, uh, I think the Oprah interview is what made me more aware of the details. Yeah, I remember hearing, like when this first happened, it it was a big story when it first happened, even before the Oprah interview. I remember hearing about this and thinking, a chimpanzee ripped somebody's face off. Like, really? I've always known that, like, chimps were pound for pound much stronger than humans are. But I also felt, and, like, I'm not, a, I'm not like, a tough guy or anything, but I also felt, like, should I be attacked by a chimpanzee uh, that I could deal with it, you know? Like, I could get the chimp off of me, especially before it actually just ripped my face off. Oh, I disagree. Um, I'm, a really? little, I'm a little smaller than you. Well, true, true. I didn't realize that they got Travis's size, I guess. I'd always like imagine chimps being like two or three-year-old, something that you could uh, kind of hold on your hip. But more, Travis more was... More Disney-sized. Yeah, Disney-sized. <laughs> but Travis was 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. 200 fucking pounds. That's yeah. huge. Um, so I no longer believe that uh, I could necessarily defend myself against a chimp. Anyway. Life lessons. Yeah. So on February 16, 2009, a chimpanzee, Travis, was feeling kind of rambunctious. He belonged to a woman named Sandra Harold. Uh, Sandra and her husband got Travis in 1995 when Travis was just three weeks old. I believe they paid $50,000 for him. And Sandra and her husband, Jerry, raised Travis as if he was just a little kid. Uh, Travis wore diapers. He ate at the dinner table. And uh, supposedly, he eventually became very fond of wine and lobster. Now, there were several warning signs in Travis's past that pointed to the possibility that he might be capable of some violent behavior. And we're going to talk more about those later on. But I feel like most of the people involved in the story were not aware that Travis would be capable 
of doing something like what he eventually did to Charla Nash. Well, at least that was the public perception. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like the I, I think the general town perception was that he was harmless, completely harmless, just a funny little guy who knew the ice cream schedule. You yeah. Know, just you know would pose with people for pictures. It was not a big deal. But there are definitely a couple obvious marks where folks were concerned. It's not as if it's not as if Travis was a zoo animal. No, I mean, this, no. This was he'd been socialized with humans. Yeah. He'd been socialized. Yeah. He appeared in commercials, including Old Navy and I believe Coca-Cola as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, Sander would take him out in the Corvette and the convertible is apparently one of Travis's favorite things to do was ride around in this Corvette. Uh, he would wave at people in town. Generally, uh, people in town liked Travis and didn't didn't really feel that like he was terribly threatening. Right. But on this day, uh, Travis was off. Um, he he didn't seem to be behaving especially dangerously. He was just being uh, kind of annoying. So, for example, he stole uh, Sandra's car keys. He wanted to go on a ride. Sandra wouldn't take him. He stole the car keys and ran out in the yard with him. And at this time, Sandra Harold was 70 years old, and she was having trouble keeping up with Travis. So she called her longtime friend, Charla Nash, who was 55 at the time, to come and help her out with Travis. Charla and Sandra met in the 70s when they were both riding horses in Loretta Lynn's traveling rodeo. (laughs) Did you know that? I did not. That's news to me. Uh, So Charla had been around Travis for uh, a good part of Travis's life, and she knew him really well. Um, But this day, uh, Charla shows up to Sandra's house in an unfamiliar car and with her hair done in a radically different style. So so Sandra speculated that uh, Travis may not have recognized Charla and uh, viewed her as a threat, and that that was why he attacked. Uh, There's also speculation that Travis's behavior was affected by medication that he was taking for Lyme disease, or by Xanax that Sandra had used to spike Travis's tea in order to settle him down. I kind of like this idea that you've got this wild animal... (laughs) living in your home and your thought is not, I've been urged to put this animal in a place where it it can have a a good environment and it can be safe and there will be people there to take care of it. Instead, you're just going to spike the tea with Xanax. Spike the tea with Xanax. You know, just see what happens in a couple hours. You know, I didn't see if this was like Southern style sweet tea or if this was like heated Earl Grey tea. This is February in Connecticut, I guarantee you it was hot tea. Really? Yeah. I, I can't, nobody's having iced tea up there in February in Connecticut. You've seen pictures of Travis, right? Yeah. He looks like a sweet tea guy to me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's overweight, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, so Sandra Harold herself has made conflicting statements about whether or not she spiked Travis's tea, be it hot or cold, with Xanax. So this is a clip of Sandra talking about the Xanax. How long was the that before the attack us. that you gave him the Xanax? Five minutes, if that. Do you think the Xanax had some kind Oh, of- no. Five minutes. And this is also a clip of Sandra talking about the Xanax. Had you given him the Xanax? Never, before? never, never. And, and it was a friend that was here. He forgot it. And it wasn't a prescription. It wasn't anything. He's never had anything. So you've never, never given him never, anything. Never, 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 never. So we're going to come back to the Xanax later. Okay. For whatever reason, Travis charged and attacked Charla shortly after she got out of her car. And when Sandra realized what was happening, it seems like she really did do whatever she could to try to stop that attack. Um, at first, she started beating Travis with a shovel, which had no effect on him at all. And after that, she ran and found an 8-inch butcher knife, and she stabbed Travis four times with it. And that actually did have an effect on Travis because he turned around and looked at Sandra 
uh, with a look that apparently terrified her. And so Sandra ran and hid in a car. At two. And at that point, she calls 911. For 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. 241 Rock, Rock Crimmon Road. What's Send the problem? The Send the police. Send the police. What's the problem there? The, the, the chip killed my, my friend. What's the problem with your friend? Oh, please. What's the problem with your friend? I need to know. What is the problem? He's killing my friend. Who's killing your friend? My chimpanzee. Oh, your chimpanzee is killing your friend. He ripped her apart. Hurry up. With a gun. Hurry up, please. There's someone on the way. With guns, please. You shoot him. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what the monkey is. He ripped her face off. He ripped her face off? He tried to attack me. Okay, I need you to calm down a little bit. They're on the way. Can you put yourself away? I don't want the monkey attacking you. Please, hurry up. Listen to me. Uh, They're on the way, ma'am. They got to shoot him. Please. Please, hurry, hurry. Are you there with your friend? I need you to help your friend. Can you go help your friend? I can't. He tried to attack me now. Is he still there with your friend? Yes. Okay, so then back off. Then don't get any closer, okay? They're already on the way. Please. If the monkey moves away from your friend, let me know, okay? So we could try I to help your friend. No, no, I can't. She's dead. She's dead. Why? Why are you saying that she's dead? She's dead. He ripped her apart. He ripped what apart? Her face? My, everything. Oh, he ripped I, her apart. Listen, I think I'm gonna flee. I think I'm gonna pass No, no, just breathe, okay? I'm gonna stay I with can't. you on the phone until they get there. Listen, please, hurry, please, please, hurry. <laughs> oh my God! They gotta have their guns out. They got out their guns out. Listen to me. Oh, my God. Is this your monkey or whose monkey yes. is it? It's your monkey. No, it's mine. How, how, do you know how big he is? How, yes, how many 200 pounds? 400 pounds. 400? 200. 200 pounds? Listen to me, please. Where are they? Where are they? And he's a chimp, correct? Yes. Where, is, where are they? They're going your way. They're going as fast as they can your way, okay? Please. Please go faster. Monkey still by your friend, or can you get yeah, close to your friend? Okay, I need you to calm down for me. I know it's hard, okay? I know it's hard, but they're going as fast as they can your way, okay? Oh my God, please. <laughs> they tell them they gotta shoot him because I tried stabbing him and he's not, and it made him worse. Okay, then. Have them shoot him. They will. Sandra, I already have the fire department close by, okay? So as soon as the police get there, the fire department is going to move in, okay? The fire department can't move in yet, but as soon as the police officers show up... Please tell them. Shoot him because he's going to try to attack me now. Just breathe, Sandra. Shoot him! Shoot him! Sandra, stay in your car. Shoot him! Sandra, I need you to stay in your car. Shoot him, please! I tried stabbing him, and, and he's hurt now, too. So so he's going to attack anybody. I can't get out of this car. Lock your doors on your car and stay it, there with me. It don't matter. It don't matter. It don't matter. He will rip the doors right Sandra, open. just do what I'm please, telling you to. Stay in the car. The police officers will handle it. Please tell him to shoot him. They did, Sandra. They're shooting at him already, okay? But he's not dead. I know. They will continue until he's dead, okay? I just need you to stay on the phone with me and breathe. He's not dead. He's not dead. He's not dead. Oh, God. Oh, God. I listen to a lot of 911 calls, which is probably strange. Not necessarily. Depends on your job, I guess. Uh, well, my job doesn't have anything to do with listening to 911 calls. And I think that this call is part of the reason that I wanted to do this. I feel like this is probably one of the top five worst 911 calls that I've ever heard. And there's a lot going on in this call. Absolutely. For one thing, and I've seen a lot of people comment online mad at this 911 operator because he doesn't seem to be taking this call seriously to begin with. 
I think there's some truth to that. Definitely at the beginning. Um, and really, I think actually at the very beginning of the call, he does seem to be. He's just trying to make sense of the words that are coming out of her mouth because she's frantic. Um, but definitely when, when he gets to chimp, it it I think he stumbles over that and there's some confusion. Yeah, I don't think uh, – I think at the point where she says um, it's a chimp – He's tearing my friend's face off. I don't think he's taking this seriously at all. And, I, you know, and honestly, I can't really blame him. I, I imagine a lot of 911 operators get a lot of crank calls. Oh, I, sure. I mean, you know, I mean, just imagine being a 911 operator and someone calls you and says there's a chimpanzee ripping my friend's face off. Right. It sounds like a crank call. So I don't fault him too much for – not seeming to take this call seriously in the beginning, but I mean, as this goes on and you start hearing uh, just the utter fear in Sandra's voice, uh, his demeanor does change. Mm-hmm. And that's when he changes to monkey, I think. You yeah. can kind of tell that the vocabulary changes once that shift happens in the phone call. Chimps aren't monkeys. Well... If it helped him get through that phone call, whatever. (laughs) I think it's especially terrifying in the beginning that you can hear Travis in the background screeching. Oh, yeah. That's uh, probably – I mean, honestly, it sounds like a soundbite from a film, which also – I mean, just like a typical jungle noise. Yeah. And I think that probably, I I guess, to me, adds to that that sort of fake quality if you're going to do a prank phone call. Yeah. And it sounds like there's just somebody holding a recorder playing into the phone, like some stock jungle noise. But it's not. It's it's a an ape going crazy. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting is at first in the call, she seems to be really concerned about her friend. But once she's decided that the friend is dead, there's almost a shift in her tone where you think, She's not afraid for her friend anymore. She's like, kill that animal because he's coming after me next. Yeah. And that happens later on. It's just, it's a really interesting shift because at first she just seems totally caught up in the chaos and, you know, obviously did try to defend her friend. But once she got into that car I and she – I think she was legitimately convinced this woman was dead. Then it became about her at that point. Yeah. Another thing that I think – particularly terrifying with this call, is the point where the 911 operator tells Sandra, just make sure that your door's locked. And then she replies to him, it don't matter. Mm-hmm. He can just rip it off the hinge. Uh, that's really kind of invokes a, a horror movie. Oh, yeah. Kind of feel. I mean, like, uh, and, and that might very well be true. I mean, can you imagine have this... This this creature who is literally tearing your friend apart outside of your car and knowing that if he comes for you, it doesn't matter if you have the door locked. He can just pull the door literally off the car. Yeah. Cars are just typically not safe in horror films anyway unless they're moving at high speeds. No, they're not. They never start. <laughs> so one of the first officers that arrived on the scene was... Frank Chiafari. And Frank actually knew Travis fairly well. He had played with Travis some. He had seen him around town. And uh, when he got the the call from uh, the 911 dispatcher, it occurred to him. He said, uh, you know, wait a minute, that's, that's Travis. I know Travis. So Chiafari pulls up to the house. And when he pulls up, he sees what he thinks is just a lump of clothing in the driveway, and then he actually realizes that that's a person who's been ripped apart. He parked on the right side of the body, and uh, another officer pulled up and parked on the left side. And at this point, they cannot get out of their cars to try to help Charla because Travis is still running around the property. And at one point, Travis actually attacks the police vehicle. Uh, he swatted the side view mirror off of the cop car, and Chiafari is wondering how he can help the victim. At one point, Travis actually approaches 
Chiafari's driver's side door, and Chiafari realizes that he has forgotten to lock the door. Travis actually opens the door to Chiafari's cop car, snarls at him. According to Chiafari, Travis was covered in blood. He's snarling. He's growling. So Chiafari pulls out his pistol and shoots Travis. And at first, this didn't really seem to have any effect on Travis. And uh, Chiafari said that he wondered for a moment if his gun had actually misfired. But after a few seconds, Travis turned and ran back into Sandra's house where he eventually died. So once Travis is out of sight, the officers that are on the scene and the paramedics are free to get out of their vehicles. And this is the first time that they get a look at what has actually happened to Charla. In an interview with the New York Times, Chia Fari said, quote, she had no face, her hands are off, there are thumbs and fingers all over the place, I feel bad, but I was hoping she wasn't conscious. And this is something that comes up a lot in the story. Um, I feel like a lot of people who see Charla immediately following this incident are hoping that she at the very least isn't conscious. And a lot of people hope that she did not actually survive this because of how severe these injuries are. So Chiafari is uh, looking down at Charla, hoping that she's not conscious. And Charla Nash, having had her face ripped off, and both hands ripped off, reaches up with the stumps of her arms to Chiafari for help. And this is an image that uh, Chiafari had a hard time dealing with even a year after this happened and probably still today. Uh, he said that he has nightmares about this. He dreams that people he knows have the same injuries that Charla had. Uh, he said that when he goes to the mall, for example, he will see women walk by and just involuntarily envision them with no face. He said that he couldn't even wear a red shirt because it reminded him of Charla's blood. In fact, the injuries to Charla were so horrific that the officers and the paramedics that saw her there had to be offered counseling services. Cops see a lot of things. So if you have to offer a cop counseling because of how horrible something they saw is, you know that it's bad. If you have to offer paramedics counseling. That's probably a little more telling, I would think, the the paramedics, because they're trained to deal with yeah. you know, people I mean, who are turned inside out for whatever reason. So Charla gets rushed across town to Stanford Hospital where a trauma surgeon named Kevin Miller is uh, waiting for her. Dr. Miller said about this quote, it was so loud in the emergency room, as soon as I unwrapped her face, you could have heard a pin drop in there. She had no recognizable features. It was like nothing I had ever seen and nothing anybody in the emergency room had ever seen. On Charla's left arm, she was missing everything from the middle of her forearm going towards her hand. On her right hand, the skin from the hand was still attached to her arm, but there were no bones or tendons underneath it. On her right hand, the doctors were only able to save her thumb. In terms of Charla's face... Travis had ripped off her entire upper jaw, had ripped her nose off, which apparently at this time was still technically attached to her face by a small strip of skin. Travis had ripped her eyelids off, but somehow her eyeballs were still intact at this time. And within all of these wounds, there was dirt and chimp fur embedded. As the surgeons start working on Charla, they start finding teeth. And at first, that they, they believe that these teeth belong to her since her upper jaw has been ripped off. 
But when they send the teeth to pathology, it comes back that they actually belonged to Travis. And a lot of these teeth were actually embedded in the bones of Charla's face. So if you can imagine, Travis was biting down on her face with such force that his own teeth were becoming embedded in the bones. And when he opened his mouth, they were so deeply embedded that his teeth were actually coming out. There were four teams of surgeons at this hospital who specialized in trauma They worked for eight hours to try to stabilize Charla and save what they could of her face. And Dr. Miller said that it was like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle. Now, there were photographs taken of Charla Nash during her stay at Stanford Hospital for use by the medical staff there. Those photographs were never released to the public. And surprisingly, they've never actually been leaked. What was released to the public, however were CT scans and x-rays of Charla Nash's skull and of both of her arms. Now, when you talk about Charla Nash, the injuries that she received, the way a lot of people talk about this and the way that I believe I've talked about it is that she had her face ripped off. And while it's true, to say that she had her face ripped off suggests that the skin covering the front of her skull, was pulled off. But there's more to it than that. When you look at these CT scans of Charla Nash's skull, you realize that not only was the skin removed from her face, large chunks of bone are also missing from the front of her skull. From the middle of her eye sockets to her bottom jaw, there are are huge clumps of bone missing in that area. And a lot of the bone that's left, it appears in this CT scan, is crushed. So we mentioned earlier that both the police and the paramedics, who were the first responders on the scene, had to be offered counseling services. Now, they're offering counseling services to the staff the nurses, and the surgeons who saw Charla Nash at Stanford Hospital. This is a level two trauma center, and what has happened to Charla Nash is so extreme that they are actually offering counseling services to surgeons now. So three days after the attack, they want to fly Charla out of the Stanford Hospital into Cleveland, Uh, Because this has become such a big news story, they fly her secretly out of the hospital. And in Cleveland, they take her to a facial reconstructive surgeon named Dr. Daniel Alam. And just like uh, Dr. Kevin Miller at Stanford Hospital, Dr. Alam says that this is like nothing he's ever seen before. And this is a facial reconstructive surgeon. That's his specialty. And he has never seen anything like what he's seeing with Charlie Nash. He said, quote, as a physician, it was probably one of the first times in my life I looked at a patient and kind of thought if at some point she had passed away during this, she might have been better off. It was literally as close to being dead as you could potentially be as a human being. So Charla's in this Cleveland hospital seeing Dr. Alam. Before they can even start to try to reconstruct her face, they have to call in infectious disease specialists because Travis's hair and nails and dirt are still embedded inside of Charla's skull. And an infection had actually started within three days of this attack. And the skin, what skin was left on Charla's face had started rotting. What kind of infection was it? A face skin infection. (laughs) A face skin infection. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently this rotting tissue on Charla's face had a very distinct odor to it. Uh, The doctors said that it was a stench like you might smell in a zoo. So it takes the doctors in Cleveland a full month to get the infection sorted out 
before they can even begin trying to work on the aesthetics of Charla's face. Now, during most of this time, Charla's kept in a medically induced coma. They do bring her out of the coma occasionally, uh, but whenever they do, Charla kind of flips out. She starts reliving what has happened. Now, later on, she said that she didn't remember the attack, but it would seem at this point she still was remembering it. And during most of this time, Charla has her face bandaged, uh, but on the occasions that they have to change these bandages, what you're basically looking at is two nasal openings, no nose above them, no lips, her lips were gone, no upper jaw, as we said earlier, her bottom jaw is intact, but most of the teeth in the front are gone, and no eyelids. And at the point where she's in Cleveland, because she still has her eyeballs at this point, they're covering her eyeballs uh, in a thin plastic film to keep them lubricated. Now, eventually, Charla's eyes stop working, and they remove her eyeballs as well. This is going to sound terribly insensitive, because it is. I feel like this is probably the only time where... I felt like somebody probably looked better without the eyeballs. Wow. Are you talking about like before and after pictures here? Like before the attack? No, not before. I mean, obviously, I'm sure she looked better with her. But I mean, like if you can imagine just, I mean, you've got just exposed skull, basically. I mean, her eyeballs weren't working anymore, so. Yeah, but I mean, if you imagine someone without a face... But eyeballs. Mm, okay. That seems far scarier to me than without a face and also no eyeballs. Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, a skull with eyeballs in it is scarier than a skull without eyeballs in it. That's true. I don't know. I don't think that really matters all that much. Just, I mean, this woman, you're talking about this woman who doesn't really have much working for her at this point. I think the. The eyeballs being there or not is kind of a moot point. Did I I cross a line? (laughs) That's the line. It's the eyeball line for this episode. (laughs) The line has been crossed. You're talking about whether her face would look better without eyeballs. Wow. Yeah, that could be the line for this episode. We should find a way to incorporate the name of the show in every episode. That'd be really classy. I was watching... uh, Legend of the Fall last night. I really liked the part in that movie where they say the title of the movie in the movie. <laughs> I I don't even know what scene that is. It's been so long since I've seen that movie. It's the part where where Albert tries to save Tristan, or he does save Tristan, mm-hmm. and he comes around the corner with a shotgun, and right before he shoots the cop, he yells, Legend of the Fall. Does that really happen? No. You're just fucking with me. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's something that Anthony Hopkins mumbles after he's had the stroke, and he writes on the little the little chalkboard around his neck, "Legends of the Fall." He's such he's such a character actor, a method actor that he has to keep writing it down to remember what movie he's in. You know, I feel like Anthony Hopkins is a really good actor, but there was a, and I like Legends of the Fall, but. Like, I feel like there's a lot that goes on in that that was a little beyond Brad Pitt's range. <laughs> and I also I also don't think that Anthony Hopkins does, like, a very convincing stroke survivor. He, does a, lot of, he does a lot of effective grunting. He's holding his yeah, mouth in such a way. Yeah, but the way he's doing his face, it just looks... Uh, it's not believable for you. Yeah, it's just not believable for me. How many awards has that man won? <laughs> For his acting, <laughs> and this is the one thing that you're upset about: what? Legends of the Fall. I mean, that's a movie, honestly, that I fall asleep to because, yeah, the music's all right and uh, the cinematography is pretty good, and I can probably be out in about 15 minutes. All right, sorry, we got off track. Yeah, we got off track. Fix it. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Travis for a minute. Travis the Chimp was born in Festus, Missouri, in 1995. Sandra and her husband at the time, Jerry Harold, adopted Travis when he was only three days old. 
Uh, they taught him to use the toilet, dress himself, and brush his own teeth. Uh, in his younger years, Travis was a performer. Travis appeared in several television commercials. I can't imagine being a, a parent of a child actor in either of those commercials reading about this after the fact. Oh, my God. Yeah. That must have been terrifying to think of your child. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't seen any of these commercials, but, I mean, I can imagine. Um, have you seen any of the commercials? With no, I haven't. I, I, I tried haven't. to look them up, and I couldn't find them. Ooh, did somebody decide they didn't want to be associated with Travis any longer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, absolutely, I'm 100% certain that after this happened, Old Navy and Coca-Cola pulled the Travis spots. Was Old Navy the one that had the, the racist jungle t-shirt debacle? Earlier this year. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Or put the black kid in the, the king of the jungle shirt. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Oh, is that the line? <laughs> I don't even know if it was Old Navy. So we got way off track there. Let's get back to Travis the chimpanzee. It would seem that his relationship with Sandra was one that you might describe as intimate. Travis would take baths with Sandra. He actually would brush Sandra's hair. Uh, a lot of people said compared Travis and Sandra to uh, an elderly married couple. Yeah, no, this does not sound like a healthy relationship at all. Like this, this animal was not her pet. This animal was like a child to her. Yeah. Yeah. She talks about being hollow after his death and, uh, Quote, he slept with me every night until you've eaten with a chimp and bathed with a chimp. You don't know a chimp. Man, we could get real morbid with that whole until you've eaten with a chimp. <laughs> so Sandra apparently would make Travis very decadent dinners. He would eat steak, ice cream, lobster, apple pie. At one point, Travis uh, actually got up to 220 pounds, which was 70 pounds overweight for him. And, of course, in addition to this, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, apparently Sandra would occasionally give him Xanax as well. And, you know, we heard earlier Sandra at once admitting that she did this and then again saying that she didn't give Travis any Xanax. But after he mauled Charla Nash, he runs back into Sandra's home where he dies. They remove Travis's body from the home, remove his head, send his head to a state lab for rabies testing. It turns out that Travis did not have rabies. And they send the body to the University of Connecticut for an animal autopsy where they find that Travis did test positive for Xanax. Right. So whether or not Sandra spiked Travis's tea with Xanax or if Travis found some Xanax somewhere and just ate it, Travis did have Xanax in his body at the time of the attack. Now, one thing that you might think is that Xanax relaxes you. Why would Xanax cause this aggressive effect uh, on Travis? But as it turns out, humans and chimps react differently to medicine. April Truitt, who ran the Primate Rescue Center in Kentucky, said that they didn't know how chimps reacted to Xanax because, frankly, it had never really occurred to them to give Xanax to a chimp. She was, however, somehow aware of how primates react to Valium and suggested that Xanax and Valium could have similar effects in chimps. According to her, Valium can have the exact opposite effect of what you're looking for and actually not be sedating at all in chimps, especially if their adrenaline is already up. So considering Travis's sort of unruly behavior earlier in the day of the attack, the Xanax might very well have been a factor in what happened that day. So we mentioned very early on in the episode that while most of the time Travis seemed quite personable, there were signs that went largely ignored that this animal might not be just this comical, cuddly creature that a lot of the residents of Stanford, Connecticut had grown to know and love. 
Yeah, a couple things stand out. Um, there is the 2003 incident. Um, basically, Travis caused some commotion at a, at a traffic light because someone had tossed something at the car, it, but it, it came into the car. So Travis opened the car door and chased this man, um, did not catch him, but then shenanigans ensue. The cops are called. And, I mean, basically this reads like a comedy skit. You know, Travis is running into cars. The cops are trying to lure him. Travis gets out of the car again, and everyone's running in circles. Yakety Sax is playing. It's all great fun. Um, a couple hours later, no harm done. Everybody goes home. Oh, Travis, he's so funny. Um, and so you get the sense that, that people were – amused by this more than frightened. Right. I mean, generally the people in the town, I think, were. Um, but someone was paying attention because it, it does lead to a 2004 law um, in which the state of Connecticut prohibits owning any primate over 50 pounds as a pet and additionally requires that uh, you know people who want to own exotic pets get a permit from the state. So someone did think that that was maybe kind of funny that a 200-pound chimpanzee would be, you know, causing this kind of commotion and decided to do something about it. Hmm. Fast forward a couple of years. Um, in 2008, you've got another incident where a woman, her name's Marcella Leone, um, gets home from a trip and finds a message on her answering machine in which, you know, She's being asked to bring a tranquilizer gun over to control Travis. And this answering machine message came from Sandra Harold. Correct. Okay. Yes. And she's not home at the time, but, you know, when she investigates the situation, finds out that nothing really happened. But this concerns her. She owns a private zoo. She's got a lot of experience with this. She decides to um, call the Department of Environmental Protection and make a complaint so this results in a memo written by a biologist at the department. Essentially, uh, this biologist made a few recommendations. The majority of them, you know, result in this animal being removed from the home or kept in a, a more secure enclosure. And also mentions that this animal is in violation of this law. So basically, Travis was grandfathered in. So he, his shenanigans result <laughs> in a law that prevents everyone else in the state from owning a Travis, but yet Except Travis, for Sandra Harrell. Travis, no big deal. Yeah. You know, he's, he's fine. He's so. totally fine. So this biologist thinks that, you know, they're in violation of this law. Um, but essentially when all of this, the memo comes out because they're investigating after the Charlie Nash incident and they're doing some sort of internal review, uh, essentially they decided, and I, I'll quote this because it's my favorite quote from this, um, Gina McCarthy, who was a DEP commissioner, um, said that they chose not to enter into what we believed would be a battle to take custody of a local celebrity. A local celebrity. So they just thought, eh, never mind. We've got a person who is a private zoo owner making a complaint here and saying this is an unsafe situation. We've got a biologist who works for the department recommending that something be done because this is a potentially unsafe situation. But they say, eh, nah. That's too much trouble. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got this this uh, little guy that everybody in the town loves. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to get in the middle of that. A lot of photo op opportunities lost if he were to be moved to a safer environment, I guess. So is there anything that you would like to add about Travis before we move on? No. I think Travis is the least interesting part of this. Really? I think it's the people that made all of these bad decisions that led up to this incident that are the interesting part of this story. I mean, he was just an animal that somebody thought they could raise as a kid or a family member, a pet, whatever. Travis didn't really have any agency in any of this. I feel bad for Travis. I do feel bad for Travis. I feel bad for a couple people involved in this story. We're not going to blame Travis for any of this. I really feel bad for – I mean, I feel bad for all three of the major affected parties in the story. I feel bad for Travis. I feel bad for Charla. And I feel bad for Sandra, too, a little bit. Sure. I also feel really bad for the cop that 
Yeah. Occasionally has to look at people and not see their faces attached. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Sandra. Go on. Uh, right after this happened, people were really hard on Sandra Harold, And people didn't really seem to have much sympathy for her. I mean, whatever, however you feel about her having kept Travis and raising him as a child, she's still someone who viewed Travis as a child. So she loved Travis. Sure, he was a part of her family. Like people would love their children. And, yeah, and and probably was the only close being in her life at that point. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, she had actually had a pretty tragic life leading up to this point. Uh, If you're trying to get yourself in the mindset of where Sandra might have been at that time, she lost her only child who died in a car accident. A few years after that, her husband Jerry develops stomach cancer uh, and dies. And, And right before he dies, he tells Sandra that she should probably rehome Travis in an animal sanctuary because he doesn't believe that Sandra is going to be capable of of dealing with Travis at her age. I'm trying to imagine being, you know, a lonely 70-year-old woman and being told I have to give up, you know, a dog that I really like. But we're talking about a a chimp (laughs) that she was, you know, bathing and eating dinner with. Um, I mean, she clearly wasn't being rational about it. If she had multiple people tell her that she needed to rehome this animal, she wasn't able to physically control this animal. She wasn't listening to any sort of reason. I mean, I would think that if I was in a position where I wasn't able to properly take care of this animal, then I would want it to go to a place where it could have a healthy environment and everybody would be safe, even if that kind of sucked for me emotionally. So by the time this happens, Travis really seems to be all that Sandra has in terms of family, what she would consider to be family. And she was interviewed shortly after the incident. And in the interview, you can really get a sense of the kind of loss that she's experiencing from losing Travis. Many, many people know the love that I had for Travis and Travis had for me. For me to do something like that, put a knife in him, was like putting one in myself. And then he turned around and like, Mom, what did you do? So nobody could know what I went through then and what I'm going through now. It's horrible. I mean, the... His blood going into his room where he was shot. Last night was a, when I, he's not in bed with me. He slept with me every night. He would comb my hair. He would, I mean, everything in the house is for him. And it's, it's just, it's a tragedy on both parts for my friend and for him and me. How do you feel about her reaction in terms of the sympathy that she seems to be showing for Travis versus Charla. I think, I don't know, there's, there's a few things that she says that just seem a little sociopathic to me, where it's, it's about her feelings, her hurt, and losing this animal. I mean, she, she gave her friend, what, three seconds in that interview? <laughs> and the rest was all about her losing, losing her, uh, her friend. And... I, I think it's kind of telling. I mean, I, I would be interested to, um, I guess, see someone's psych profile of her. On May 25th, 2010, 15 months after Travis attacked Charla, Sandra Harold died of a ruptured aortic aneurysm. She was 72 years old. Her attorney released the following statement, quote, Ms. Harold had suffered a series of heartbreaking losses over the last several years, beginning with the death of her daughter, who was killed in a car accident, then her husband, then her beloved chimp Travis, as well as the tragic maiming of friend and employee Charla Nash. In the end, her heart, which had been broken so many times before, could take no more. Kind of corny. Yeah, it is a little corny. <laughs> the, uh, 
I was kind of with him up until the heart, which could take no more bit. So Charla sued Sandra for, I believe it was $40 million? Fifty. $50 million. Initially, yeah. That actually did not come to its conclusion until after Sandra Harold had died. Eventually, Charla Nash was able to settle with Harold's estate for $4 million. So by November 2009, Charla had undergone several reconstructive surgeries. So what the doctors did is they used part of Charla's leg to construct something akin to a nose. Mm-hmm. Um, they rebuilt her tongue and they cut a small hole in her face so that she could eat. And it seems like they were essentially just trying to cover the trauma that was caused to her face um, and make it at least minimally functional in terms of breathing and eating. It, it wasn't like they tried to put together something that actually appeared to be a face. And it's around this time that this was already a a huge news story. And it's around this time that Charla Nash agreed to be interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. And I think that that's the point where this story really hit another level in terms of publicity. And it's during this interview with Oprah Winfrey when Charla Nash reveals to the public what she looks like after this attack. We'd really like to play clips from this Oprah Winfrey interview for you, but I am absolutely certain that we will not get permission from the Oprah Winfrey show to do that, so I'm not even going to ask. So what we're going to do instead is we are going to step inside our copyright compliance time machine, and then we're going to come back to you and let you hear our thoughts during and after watching this interview. Are you ready to get in the time machine? I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and we're back. (laughs) That's ridiculous. (laughs) We have just landed from our copyright compliant time machine, our gas-powered copyright (laughs) compliant time machine. Do you feel okay from... From the trip in the time machine, do you wish you had taken, like, a Dramamine or something? I'm a little woozy, but I'll be all right. All right. For you, the listener, only a few seconds have passed. But for Jamie and I, 12 minutes have gone by in which we watched Oprah Winfrey's interview with Charla Nash. When Charla first goes on Oprah Winfrey's show, she's wearing a veil over her face. And there's this point in the interview where she agrees to let Oprah Winfrey remove this hat that has the veil attached to it. And that's when you really get a good look at what Charla looks like now. How would you describe Charla's face? This just looks like uh, basically a face that used to be human and now is just struggling to find some kind of recognizable feature. I mean, this is just trauma at its worst. And she's still, it's its pretty amazing that she's still able to actually talk to Oprah um, because her, her voice is, is actually surprisingly clear, mm-hmm. um, even though clearly she's having trouble navigating that part of language that is helped out by things like lips and tongues. But I mean, she's, she's doing incredibly well here, actually. Um, the voice that's coming out of her doesn't match with the face that I'm looking at right now. I wonder if she heard the introduction that Oprah Winfrey gave her, where Oprah Winfrey's saying, you know, I've seen burn victims, I've seen people with all kinds of injuries, I've never seen anything like this. I wonder if that's something that they recorded later on or if that's something that they did with an earshot of her. I don't know. Oprah's definitely doing uh – She's she's got some showmanship going on here. Like when she decides to dab something on her face, what part of her face is she dabbing? The entire thing is oozing. You know that's that seems that kind of made me want to pull my hair out a little bit. Like Oprah, come on! It's very obvious that this woman's got some problems. The the dabbing just doesn't really. I can't imagine that did much for her ratings. 
Yeah. It's clearly an attempt by Oprah to say, uh, I am not put off by this. Let me dab your face. Yeah, but that, that just seems so calculated to me now that I'm oh, watching this again. Oh, calculated. Absolutely. I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> I think Oprah looks totally uncomfortable. I mean, she's Oprah. She's not going to be, like, awkward. Yeah. Like a regular person. <laughs> but I don't know. Some of it just seems like she's really reaching to try to make a connection with this woman, but just doesn't even know what angle to come from. And there's also that point where she says a lot of people would not want to go through life. Want to go through. Like this woman looking, made this choice. Looking <laughs> yeah, like. right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean also, I mean like the, the implication there, I mean like the subtext of that is if I looked like that, I would kill myself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling really bad for Charlie Nash in this interview because she chose this venue to show her face to the world. At the end of this interview, Oprah Winfrey reaches out and grabs Charla's hand and her says... Her thumb. What's that? Her thumb. Yeah, her thumb. Yeah, and <laughs> says, uh, there's that one thumb. There's that one part of you that... <laughs> did not get ripped off. <laughs> right. I think it did get ripped off. They just put it back on. It was still, like, okay, right? Mm. That's such a strange thing for Oprah to say. There's that There's thumb. that thumb. It sounds like she's talking to a four-year-old. Yeah. She's talking to a woman who's approaching 60. It's pretty, it's pretty messed up. This woman is, her brain's working just fine. She is clearly able to respond to all of these questions, but it seems like Oprah is talking to a preschooler for part of this interview. There's that thumb. There's that thumb. That, that one, that one that. human connection we can yeah. make now is your recognizable thumb. The one human attribute, physical attribute that you have left. There it is. I guess I was kind of expecting a little more empathy from Oprah. Um, I mean, she seemed empathetic. It just didn't she seem does, genuine. But it de- yeah, it, it did definitely seem disingenuous. What kind of gifts do you think the audience got at the end of that episode? Bananas and isotoner gloves. See, I was going to go with Kleenex. Kleenex. Kleenex, yeah. I, I mean, think, Oprah really had that product placement down. I think isotoners would be great because she gives out the isotoners to everybody, and she's like, you get some isotoners, and you get some isotoners, and then she gets around to Charla Nash, and she's like, you get some isotoner gloves. Oh. There's that thumb. <laughs> There's that thumb. And then they make a special isotoner just for Charla Nash that's, that they, they've just, like, just made a thumb isotoner and they give that to her oh yeah maybe we're being too hard on oprah (laughs) i'm sure this was a rough interview to do for everyone we should maybe cut oprah a little slack no (laughs) no we've gone too far now okay (laughs) about two years after the oprah winfrey interview charla nash had a full face transplant along with hand transplants The hands that they gave to Charla Nash did not take, and they had to be removed. Here's a clip of Dr. Pomahawk of Brigham and Women's Hospital explaining what went wrong with that part of Charla's transplantation. The hand transplants turned out to be very challenging technically, but at the end of the operation, the blood was flowing to the hands, and we considered the outcome to be successful. A few days postoperatively, Charla developed pneumonia and as a result became septic. Charla's blood pressure dropped, causing the blood flow to the hands to be compromised. After several days of doing everything possible to retain the hands, it was clear that they were not thriving, so we removed the transplanted hands. The face transplant, however, was successful and it's still in place today. And here again is Dr. Pomahawk talking about that procedure. Charla's full face transplant was very different from the others we've performed today. Because of the extent of her injuries, she required significantly more work. We had to remove first the tissues that were used for reconstruction and then recover the full facial transplantation, including the skin, the underlying muscles based on their vessels, 
as well as nerves that provide motor function and sensory, sensory function to the new face, and including the entire heart, palate, and teeth from the donor. It was really a combination of the previous operations that we have done all together. As a result of the face transplant surgery, Charla now has a palate and teeth. She will eventually be able to eat a hamburger, something she said was very important to her, having only had pureed food since her injury, and I think we can all relate to that. Charla will be able to breathe through her nose and will regain her sense of smell, something we know and we have heard from our patient Dallas Weens is extremely important to a blind person. Finally, as a result of this operation, Charla will now be able to enjoy a more normal social life and time with her friends and family. Now, even with the $4 million settlement that Charla received from the Herald Estate, uh, as you can imagine, medical bills for something like a face transplant are huge. Oh, yeah. It's got to be astronomical. We're talking about millions upon millions, millions of dollars. Of dollars. Um, as it turns out, the U.S. military became very interested in this face, this face transplant of Charles. Um, they were interested in it in terms of possibly performing this procedure on soldiers who had been disfigured in combat. So the U.S. military picked up the bill for Charles' face transplant. In return for this, every few weeks, Charla is subjected to MRIs and CT scans to determine how well her brain is sending signals to the new face and also how well her arteries are delivering blood to that transplant. They're also interested in monitoring the scarring around her mouth and how well her eyelids work. So apparently they replaced her eyelids and the new eyelids are at least somewhat functional. I feel like we should probably do an episode at some point just on face transplants. Oh, yes. I love that idea. Um, it's fascinating stuff. It absolutely is. And it's also disturbing. I mean, it's great that people can get to some level of normality in the way that they look. But you also have a dead person's face on your skull. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So after this face transplant, Charla still, obviously, she's had trauma. But as opposed to the way that she looked during that Oprah Winfrey interview, it is dramatically improved. Right. I, th I feel like now if you saw Charla Nash walk by you with the face transplant that she has, if she was maybe wearing a pair of sunglasses and you just saw her out of your periphery, you wouldn't acknowledge that there was anything going on with that person. As opposed to the way that she looked on the Oprah Winfrey show where if you catch a glance of that, your eye is going to be immediately drawn to it. So that carries us through the bulk of this drama. In the years following all of this, Charla has continued to heal. She's had a few bumps along the way. At one point, they feared that her body was actually rejecting the face transplant, but they fortunately got that under control. In 2014, after she had healed up quite a bit, she went to Washington, D.C., in support of the Captive Primate Safety Act, which would ban the transport of primates across state lines if they're to be used as pets. We haven't so far heard anything in terms of clips from Charla Nash herself speaking. So here's a few excerpts from her talking about this Captive Primate Safety Act. I am Charla Nash. I'm here today to make sure that what happened to me never happens to anyone else ever again. In February 16, 2009, I was attacked and mauled by my boss's chimpanzee, Travis. I'm, I'm here today. I support this bill, and, and I hope people really, you know, go, go by it and support it. As far as I've been able to tell, this legislation that Charla Nash was supporting stalled and it never really went anywhere, as so many things do in government. Today, Charla Nash seems to be in remarkably good spirits. She's likely always going to have to be in some sort of assisted living situation. She currently has a couple of people who cook for her and who help her do things that she isn't physically able to do herself. But she is getting out and seemingly enjoying her life. 
She was interviewed fairly recently back in May of 2017. Uh, apparently, she's been frequently visiting this horse ranch. Horse riding was a passion of hers before the attack. If you remember earlier, we talked about uh, her time in Loretta Lynn's traveling rodeo. And at the time of the interview that she gave in uh, 2017, she was hoping very soon to be back riding horses. Uh, maybe she already is. I hope so. And that brings us to the end of the first episode of Where is the Line? If you made it this far, thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Facebook or online at whereistheline.podbean.com. And we'll see you again in two weeks. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look under your bed.